0: Welcome back to the Disruptors Podcast. The Quantified Self is defined as a movement that allows individuals to measure, track, and quantify their biometrics in a holistic fashion with the capability to one day move from sick care to proactive care. And With the rise in digital health tools available to self-track and analyze your body's data, the Quantified Self enables individuals to make informed decisions and take control of their health. In this discussion, Manifold Advisory partner John Spioklet chats with Larry Smarr, a physicist and leader in scientific computing, to discuss how charting bodily inputs and outputs in minute detail will alter the future of healthcare from the outside in. It's a fascinating conversation. I think you get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to John and Larry.
1: Hello, everybody. John Spiokla here. It's a pleasure to be here for our Growth Innovator series. I'm particularly excited about today. Larry will demur on this, but... Larry's the closest thing in my life I've ever met to a Leonardo da Vinci it is unbelievable. Let me just give you a little bit of the background and then get at what we're going to get at today, which is all about the quantified self. But to give you an idea of the quality of mind and career that Larry has had, his original thesis back in 75 on collision of black holes. And shortly after he became a faculty member down at Champaign-Urbana, the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, he went out and created the first high-speed backbone to the internet. So that he could do simulations, get the computational power necessary to do simulations of black holes coming through. And in his lab, uh, a number of fantastic things were invented, including the first browser. And then he picked up stakes and went out to CalIT2, the supercomputing lab that he created starting out with Governor Bray Davis and then with other leaders after that. And in that lab, I spent a fair amount of time out there, you see amazing things, everything from mapping the global biome, the human biome, the biggest quantification of the human biome ever. For those of you familiar with the Framingham Heart Study, it's kind of the Framingham Heart Study for the human biome. 3D printing technology, drones, massive data visualization. You'll see a little bit of it in his work. Nanotechnology, nanofabrication, to the curious mind it is just a, a treat. And Larry is that wonderful combination of humble genius and has managed to bring together just an amazing amount of things. He's got just a, a long list of awards. He's a member of the National Academy of Engineering, of the American Physical Society, American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He won the Franklin Institute Stelmar Farney Medal for Leadership in Science, the Telluride Tech Festival Award of Technology. And I think one of the most uh, impressive things is he won the Golden Goose Award from the U.S. Congress for his work involving black holes and supercomputing, because the five million dollars that they gave Larry and his team turned into an amazing backbone of the internet, the browser, and so forth, which just generated and appropriately named Golden Goose for the country in general. So it is a great pleasure to introduce my dear friend and genius Larry Smarr. So welcome, Larry.
2: Thank you, John. That's way over the edge as usual. It's great to be back with you.
1: Glad to be here. Let me take folks through what we're going to get done today. So I give you the background on Larry, a word from our sponsor. We at Manifold, we're trying to figure out, if you will, what we call the Manifold growth system, Manifold management system for continuous growth for companies. And there's three parts to what we do. And, and I'm kind of like a kid in the candy store myself here at Manifold because we have Manifold advisory, which is traditional consulting. And then we have Manifold Studios where you get to build stuff and then Manifold Ventures where we get to take bets on our ideas and and such. And we generally play in the domain of the transformation of, of industries or organizations enabled by technology, but with some traditional real economic and organizational chops and analysis. So it's fun. And what we call healthy growth, which to us is a combination of low entropy and high inclusion, is really the mandate for organizations now and going forward. And we've got some fun customers that we've worked with over the years. To remind you all, for those of you who have been here before, the fundamental theoretical thing underneath what we're doing here, and it absolutely refers to the quantified self. And it's this theory of computability. And what's happening to the world in general, and certainly the world of commerce, is that we're two things are happening at the same time. And some of this is pointed out by Ray Kurzweil under the notion of the law of accelerating returns. Back in 99, I think. the world's getting described more and more in symbols, it's being digitized. And at the same time, we have higher and higher knowledge of what's going on. And a simple way to think about knowledge is categorization. Can you say, okay, there's A's, there's B's, there's C's. Correlation, A usually goes with B. And then causation, A causes B. Those are higher and higher levels of knowledge. And then the two of those things together equals computability. So if you can digitize it and you have high level of knowledge of complete computability, and we'll use an analogy today of the, the evolution of your automobile, and the automobile has become much, much more computable. And what we're talking about today really is how do we think about the computability of human health, and the human body, and even its environment? and what that looks like over time and how does that drive our level of knowledge? And also, how does it drive? We're going to look at two things in particular. We're going to look at some thoughts about how it might impact providers, those healthcare providers, basically going from sick care to well care and what that would look like. And also insurers, because when you can compute a future event, how you manage risk in the context of that changes radically. As we've seen with everything from from reinsurance to a simple a car insurance or your home insurance if you have a HIPPO with you know, sensors in your house for flooding and so forth. So this, we think that this fundamental thing, understanding computability, is important because it's changing the nature of power and profitability and control and growth in markets. So with that, I'm going to turn over to Larry, and we'll get into it. Larry.
2: Astrophysics. The reason I say that is because if you think about it, you read all this stuff that the Hubble Space Telescope and all these things are seeing, but when you look up, you just see points of light, and so that point doesn't it doesn't tell you if it's a radio galaxy or anything else, and you have to figure out what it is. And so, what astronomers have learned over centuries to do is to take time series in, say, visible light, and radio, and X-ray, and see how by looking at those time series. In the case of humans, just think of it as like an EKG over time, your heart rhythm over time. And then from that, you can determine a great deal about the state of that object in the sky. And so I grew up doing that. And when I began to think about why aren't we doing that for our own bodies, which are complex, dynamic, multi-component systems, I began to think about, well, let's look at something simpler that's a dynamic, multi-component system, which is an automobile. And I was fortunately at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications. One of our industrial partners was Motorola. And so what I learned that I think a lot of people don't realize is that in the 90s, when the personal computer revolution was taking off, creating the great fortunes and Apple and Microsoft and and, uh, Intel and so forth, 90 percent of the microprocessors that were made were going into automobiles, not personal computers. And so there was sort of this invisible thing that the cars were being computerized. And also, they were putting all kinds of sensors on your brakes, on your spark plugs, on fuel injection, everything. Uh-huh. And there was solid-state memory that became to be cheap enough that you could put a lot of memory in your car. Your car has a five different sub-networks. It has all kinds. It's it's like all these computers and all these memories in your car. And the whole point is to just capture time series of a lot of key variables. So what happens in in the 2000s is then, as the internet grew, the ability to link together all of the car service, what we used to call garages, where you take your car in, all got interneted together. And so what happened then is When I was in the 50s, 60s, starting with cars, we had a sick care system for cars. And so the way you knew you needed to do something with your car is smoke was coming out from under the hood, or knock, 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 or whatever, and you take it in, and they said, "Oh, you forgot to put in oil. You're gonna you ruined the engine. You had a chronic disease, and it's gonna cost you. It's gonna wear the link chain, put the whole damn engine up. I mean, you notice that doesn't happen much anymore. And the reason is because we went to preventive health care for your car, whichever 20,000 miles you go in. And what happens is they, it's not a human, they plug a computer in and read out those time series. Uh They compare it with the population health of all the cars of your make and model. Uh And they look at you individually, your car individually and see if one or another of those vital signs is beginning to deviate. From either its own normal, because you're, of course, in a very different environment than a car that's identical to yours, sure. model, but it's in a very different environment. And so the stresses and the and how it's driven and how long it's driven and is there salt on the streets? I mean, all these things are different. Sure. Because then what you're doing is you have population health, but now you're looking at it, each car individually and you're managing the health of each car individually. Yes, You're making interventions when you very first begin to see a deviation, which you as the driver have no idea is going on in your car. Mm-hmm. But then that pops it back into better, into normal behavior. And so 200,000 miles after you buy your car, it's essentially running as well as it did. In fact, it, it may have newer parts in it than we yeah. have. Well, it's interesting. I know our mutual
1: friend, Nick Poudar, when he was putting OnStar into GM, yeah. they did the math, and first they released it just the GM employees, and with that sample, I think it was on the order of 10,000 cars or something like that, they were able to increase their level of knowledge of correlation causation, and they believe that they they avoided well over half a billion dollars of future warranty costs because of their understanding and engineering changes they can make i'm talking about preventative care for the car and now we have tesla upgrading its cars by software
2: right so i have a tesla model x it's an old one five years old and it is vastly superior to when i bought it because of the software yes and it'll tell me hey we have a software upgrade how about 2 a.m and my garage is right under where I'm sitting in my office. And yeah. so it's got good Wi-Fi. And the next morning it has all kinds of features that I didn't have literally yesterday, yeah. much less five years ago when I bought it. Yeah. So so the even though the the, the entity that, that I mean you, you you have in your mind's eye, I buy this car and it depreciates half when I walk it off the Drive it off the lot, and then it just continually depreciates over the life of the capital asset. Correct. In my case, and anybody else who has this kind of thing, your your capital asset is increasing in value, uh-huh. with not decreasing. Yes. The whole economics is turned upside down.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, turning to the the quantify itself for those for our audience. I mean, Larry, you are obviously super early in this whole thing, and and. And for those of you who follow Quantified Self, you'll know Larry. For those of you who don't, Quantified Self is—I think—it is a whole movement and a whole new field of science and concern. And it's, it's, as Larry once told me, it's, it's it's populated by two groups of people. You have the, the scientific folks and so forth. Then you have some whack jobs. But let's leave the whack jobs out for a minute. Let's talk about the scientists. And the idea is to fundamentally look at our bodies differently, measure our bodies differently think about our role in our health differently and to and to me it's a combination of insight and science as well as behavior and knowledge so that you can act better and, and so forth and and that's at the individual level or the family level or the society level. And it's just and we're the very early days of this, I mean in terms of, of doing it. And it's so different than traditional healthcare which is very cross-sectional. And small data and lots of memory uh, by doctors. So, Larry, you want to give a little sense of how you got into the whole uh, idea of quantified self even before it was called that?
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the scientists, but actually, with all of the wearables, if you go back to uh, 2000 and to say 2010, sure, uh, as they begin to come out, actually, it's the athlete a large part. I would say the individual athletes, not that of course is for Professional teams and stuff like that, but but just individuals who are runners or, or swimmers or, or or marathon or triathlete or whatever, because they are highly motivated to shave a few seconds or to be able to do this, and so they started things like wearing you know Fitbits and others that would measure simple things. So like I have a Fitbit. I this is I've had this for different versions of it, but I've been I have a continuous data stream. Uh-huh. This for now nine years uh-huh. and so I, I know for basically every heart rate and every how many steps how many calories and everything for a nine year straight yes uh, on a very high time frequency well I noticed when I so when I came from Illinois which yes. is if you look at a map of obesity in the country then you'll see that heartland, as they call it, and the deep south are the are are the highest levels because two thirds of Americans are overweight or obese by now. Yes. Um, And and so I I did not look like I look now. I was I looked like a a typical Midwesterner Mm -hmm. Um, and I got off the wagon train from Illinois to San Diego and looked around at all these people and they didn't look like me Yes. And I, I thought, well, gee, if I don't figure out what's going on here, uh, they're going to send me back. And so I got a personal trainer, and I started thinking about what I was eating. <laughs> yep. And I started cutting out a, a lot of the stuff that drives us to having chronic diseases that we eat. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I started losing weight and everything else. And and as I was doing it, I said, well, i got to keep track of all this. Mm-hmm. So I started measuring more and more of my body, but I assumed I was healthy. But I, I noticed that when I would go in and you get an annual physical, and they do some blood work or something. And I started looking at those numbers because most of us don't think about. Homocysteine, or secretory IgA, or or your any your your liver enzymes, or anything. And what I realized is they tell you well they're normal, or you're a little low, or a little high, and one of them, complex reactive protein in your blood, was like five times above the normal. Wow. What is that thing? And it turned out it measured your inflammation. And I actually had high levels of inflammation. And by 2000. 12, call it, the upper limit for right. inflammation in my body. And of course, I was shocked because I had this time series and I was saying, I'm getting worse. Mm-hmm. And I would go in to my doctor and 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 they'd say, well, do you have a symptom? And I said, I, I got data. Right. Get out of here. You're wasting my time. I only look at people that have are sick. Yes, um, and I said, but I'm gonna be sick. I got something okay. going on inside of me. Anyway, that was what led me into then starting to take what is now every month or two a whole series of blood tests. I probably measure a hundred and something variables in my blood, and then I was always one of the early adopters for the genomics, your human genomics. So I was early twenty three and me. I had my whole human genome done by. Three different leaders of this, like Craig Venter and George Church and Lee Hood, and the pioneers of, of genome sequencing. And then I was it, because I mean it's sort of funny, but I ended up being asked to be on the advisory committee to the director of the National Institutes of Health, which is the mm-hmm. highest-level advisory committee in the country for this. I was the only one that wasn't a liver doctor or a brain doctor or something you know around the table. And I, I was like, why did they invite me? Mm-hmm. Of course, it was what you said that there was this what looks like a slow digitization of the human organism, but it's actually exponential. We are very bad at noticing that there's exponential change underway, but that's what was going on. And so I began to see this in terms of policy at the NIH and that sort of thing. And so then I, because I'm a scientist, I just said, well, wow, this is a cool new field. So I've just been gathering more and more data, including my microbiome. And then it, 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 it taught me a lot of things I wasn't aware of about myself, which we can get into.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, let's get into some of the data. So, this notion of self knowledge through self tracking, right? The other thing I just would like to highlight again is that because I think for, for those for folks who are or not accustomed to doing a lot of data analytics and so forth, the difference between cross-sectional data, looking for variance against norms, if you will, which is what we all get when we go to the doctors, hey, are you pre-diabetic or not? Is your cholesterol too high or not? Versus watching longitudinal analyses over time. And and medicine has very few of those. And so it really is that kind of new field. And I think the impact is going to be as great. And then, I know, Larry, you and I were kicking around this. When you step back and you look, there's no question that the big providers um And some other big companies are into this, right? So when Google buys Fitbit to try to catch up to the Apple Watch, you and I were just kicking around about the numbers. Uh, You know, there's over 100 million Apple Watches out there as, as of the early part of this year. And it's kind of fun when you look at which parts of the body uh, but you have other folks, right? The Chinese are doing this, Huawei, the Samsung um, has got a big, a five, over $5 billion you know healthcare device capability. And then you start looking at just all different parts of our lives will start to, whether it's your phone or your car or whatever, start to be enabled to do sampling of what's going on with people inside. So this whole notion of a sensor-based environment driving to more and more of a digital twin of Everyone, I think, is is you know pretty clear, and so I think that's obviously the global wearable technology market. It's a big number three two billion. We've got a twenty trillion dollar global economy. I, I, for me, I think it's it's interesting to look at. Yeah, we're instrumenting all this stuff. That's a big market, but more importantly, is the impact of those insights so when we're looking at roughly four trillion dollars of the u.s economy being spent on health the big number is what you can do with that information and we'll talk a little bit about it you know, about provision and, and, and risk but i don't know if you want to say anything else here we'll, we'll get into some of the data that you're sharing with us
2: yeah we'll move forward another slide yeah so a uh, 64 million pixel wall so that's 32 screens on their PCs, and each of those uh, screens i have the graph over eight years of one of the variables, like insulin or my glucose, my ALT, my AST, my two liver enzymes, or my uh, cholesterol numbers, my HDL, my LDL. What? But you normally, I think almost all of you that are listening might have those once <laughs> on paper that your doctor may or may not hand to you. Sure. Um, and you don't see all those, you know, see all those spikes, <laughs> you know? Yes. So, so you're much more dynamic, is what I discovered, by using my own body as an observatory into the human. That's what offended me. I just turned myself into a data generator. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then the, the, the ones that are green mean that the, all the oscillations going on are between the upper and lower normal limits across the population. But you'll notice some of them are, are yellow and then a couple of them are red. Yeah. And those are the ones in which I'm definitely way above normal healthy values. And yes. I had no idea. And the reason is because the idea that you can intuit that through your brain, you can intuit the actual chemical values in your bloodstream is a is a as hallucination. I mean it's it's just insane. Right. And and it was very clear that I could show that. Now, yes, as time went on, I began to develop more and more symptoms, because it turned out what I'd learned and, and when I got into, well, why did I have such high inflammation? I looked at my genome. And in particular, the what are called the SNPs, the single nucleotide polymorphisms, where you differ from the population at a particular point in your DNA. Uh-huh. And And that in the last few decades, they've been able to take various diseases and take people that have those diseases, and the people that don't have the diseases, compare their human genomes and find where there are genetic predispositions. Yes, I had a predisposition for an autoimmune disease called Crohns. And And so I just I actually figured out by 2012, I must have Crohns. Mm-hmm. Must have a form of inflammatory uh, bowel disease. Yes. And up until that point, no doctor had said, hey, maybe you have this. It just, because first of all, I was doing stool tests as well. I couldn't get my doctor to do those. But by then, uh, online tests where you could just order a stool kit and then put, you know, stool in it, send it off in FedEx, and then you get back the numbers. It turned out I was 125 times the upper limit for inflammation in my colon. I had no idea, except that I started bloating and I started bleeding out the end of the that particular tube and so on, having cramps and all this and and so it was basically that i I before I actually got into the chronic stage of the disease, I was able to tell I was on a trajectory, yes headed toward that. and then from maybe twenty twelve until about twenty sixteen next four years, I was very episodically sick with with Crohn's, which of course you may know or, or you may have yourself uh, similar uh, ulcerative colitis or, or Crohn's. And so I started learning a lot more about that. And, mm-hmm. and we were very fortunate that Dr. Bill Sanborn, who spent 20 years at the Mayo Clinic as one of the world's experts, IBD, had been recruited to UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. So I was able to start uh, having him as a doctor, which was a huge... You know, relief because he understood what I was talking about. Yes. And had written a lot of science, he was a researcher. So he'd written a lot of scientific papers on this. And, and in particular, he'd written a lot of papers on how you use particular uh, measurements of biomarkers in your blood uh-huh. and your stool as indicators of of IBD. And so that was a very unusual doctor. And, and actually, we published papers together now. Yeah. With my data generated from my body and his uh, vast knowledge as well. It's interesting, Larry. Too,
1: that I know you are uh, retired from Cal it 2 but is it is it true that you guys also created the software to do this massive data display and dealing with this you know tremendous amount of data?
2: Yeah, we wrote all the software ourselves. We we have our we have teams of like all the, I mean I basically spent the last forty years in building collaborative innovation, and so. Yeah. We bring together people and software, people from disciplines like medicine or wildfires or whatever it is, yes. and, then, and then we use the very latest in technology. And the most recent is machine learning, mm-hmm. uh, where, of course, when you begin to get enough data like this, you can begin to go from simple statistics to... Learning and, and and why don't you go to the next slide because I want to say where this led me to. So by 2016,
1: I, actually, I, can I just just before you do this for so just for folks who are listening. The if you're on that if your organization is on that leading edge of of trying to figure out data visualization and analysis and so forth, the standard tools aren't going to get you there usually. And so uh, a lot of the stuff that Larry's lab did, some of it's open source, some of it's through sponsorship and stuff, it's just, there are a few places where you can really get both the compute power, the display, the analytic expertise, the data expertise, and so forth. And and, and another time I'll we'll talk about Larry and the academic community is really building these tools to deal with these massive data sets that we're going to get out of this computable reality. So I just wanted to kind of bookmark that. That's yeah, that's well,
2: I'll, I'll tell you in particular that at UC San Diego, we now have, we got a private donation that allowed us to create a data science. And we have about 600 undergraduate majors in data science now at UCSD. And it's happening across many of the leading universities now uh, are developing an entire new curriculum around data science, and it encompasses uh, going to attack everything. And so, all of those data that I'm making, I'm working now with the data scientists to to make those public, so that so that we can get all kinds of people. I have no idea who they are coming in and and beginning to use these these constantly increasing
1: capabilities
2: of machine learning. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and pattern analysis to discover things. And then my son, actually, Benjamin Smarr, is now a professor at UC San Diego in that Data Science Institute. Oh. And he's been working with an aura ring, which measures your temperature, your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your respiratory rate. And working with UC San Francisco during the COVID pandemic, they started gathering those time series from healthcare front, frontline healthcare workers. Yes. Uh, And then people who have these opt in, they now have something over 50,000 individuals who have these time series. And so they're building for the first time, as far as I know, a human time series database that's 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 the software is organized around the idea that these are humans databases from wearables. But also they're going to add all my data in as well. Yes. So I think this hasn't happened because there wasn't enough people generating the data but now wearables as you mentioned 100 million apple watches now the software begins to follow the data and so these software infrastructures begin to happen and once that happens then medical folks can say well the patients have more data than are in my medical record how do i get a hold of that and so you're going to see it what we call a future doctor as well as a future patient yeah in that in that they're going to be early adopter people in the healthcare profession decide okay i can't let this train go by without getting on it and it's not going to be everybody it's going to be like any other technological thing. you yeah. will be early adopters, late late. Adopters. Yeah, I mean, my prediction is that
1: as we want to talk about some of the implications. I think that in insurance in particular, in any industry, if you look across the history of an industry, there are certain times where increase in research and development gives you a big breakthrough advantage. And, mm-hmm. and I would say right now that in insurance... Especially anything around health and so forth, that doing R and D into this area is going to give people a breakthrough advantage, and we don't know what it is yet. That's why they call it research. But just like the property casualty insurance business, when they added credit, completely transformed as an underwriting variable. I think there are underwriting variables and models to be discovered here, just like there were, you know, reinsurance had a revolution about 15 years ago with the addition of new kinds of modeling. So you have an insurance, you have an industry like insurance that doesn't have a history, really, of much research and development, and certainly health insurance and so forth. But here, I would would advocate that the potential yield is unbelievable because
2: you have... mm -hmm. Let me just take that example. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you are thinking, well, that's great for you, Larry. But, you know, if I went into my doctor and said I wanted to do 100 variables, which is about 12 vials of blood, I do every month or two. Yes. Um, they they'd say, well, the insurance won't pay for it because they would say nobody gets that many records. They're, they're, I mean, so so insurance right now is the bottleneck. Yes. It's what's stopping more people from getting these time series. Yes. But what you're talking about is that there will be some in the insurance industry who get that a revolution of, like we saw with with when. Steve Jobs was a genius enough to make iTunes and how that completely flipped that entire industry. And, and so some of them are going to be say, well, hey, like the car insurance, maybe if we put a little sensor in the car and right. we give your time series on how you as an individual drive your car, right. maybe even though that's a capital cost for us up front, maybe we could begin to switch our whole portfolio of insurance to give rewards to the better drivers and shift our whole risk portfolio. Right. Yes. Well, it's inevitable that that's going to happen. Inevitable.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and just like pharma is dealing with what they call real world data, right? Trying to update their models and so forth. And the vaccine being one of those things. I think the leading insurers can do this. Just out of curiosity, Larry, about how much dough does it cost you to get all those measures every month?
2: Well, currently, and I would, I, I'd say my insurance is covering this because uh, I do have uh, a number of health issues that have occurred, the codes but for them. If you were doing it out of pocket, I mean, a hundred bucks,
1: bucks.
2: Yeah. I mean, I would say it's hundreds of dollars, maybe a uh, thousand yes, dollars or something like that. Yeah. So, I mean,
1: uh, I mean, you think about... I mean, for an insurance company, and they could obviously get cheaper prices. Let's say it costs them five hundred to a thousand dollars, and somewhere between a, you know a couple thousand to at the most ten thousand dollars a year You yeah. get longitudinal data points across. You don't have to spend uh, a they, lot. They,
2: they are doing the hospital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And
1: uh, yeah, it's it's like the current infrastructure budget right now. People talk about six point three trillion. It's actually just that's over ten years. It's actually just two F twenty twos a yeah. year. So, anyway, you know, that's a little conversation. The two planes a year and rebuild the infrastructure. But yes, I mean, I, I just, it, it would take some selling by the innovators with an insurance company. But the data cost to get a true data that is unique and right. valuable is really not high for a large
2: company. Well, and in particular, I'm working with several doctors now that are with private sector people with private practices. And, and they're going out and finding that they can cut deals with places like Quest and, and, and LabCorp and so sure. get a panel that does a lot of this stuff. And because it's it's done as a whole, uh, they can bring the cost way down. Yes. And so they're beginning to do this for their patients, just based as an example off of what they've seen me do. Yes. So let, me, let me take it one step further, because yes. this is just time series. But what about imaging? And right. so, what I had, of course, I have done for done computer graphics, but I've worked on this for decades. And so, we we when you go in and get an MRI, you get it. It comes back as these slices, these black and white slices, and the radiologist looks at it. The doctor probably never looks at it. And they look at what the paragraph that the radiologist wrote about what they saw. And right. I said, well, what is that about?" And so I said, "Let I." it turns out there's a standard DICOM is the standard format for these things. I said, just give me the DICOM file. And I took it into my guys and I said, okay, make a 3D transparent Larry out of this. Mm -hmm. Because we've known in computer graphics how to do this for several decades. Because like if you go to SIGGRAPH, I remember the first time I saw a transparent human made out of 2D slices of MRI or CAT scan. Sure. And so we started doing that, and and then I spent a lot of time inside my body, wandering around inside my body. Weird experience for most people. Uh, and I'm holding a 3D printout of a portion of my colon, my sigmoid colon, where the inflammation was localized. And I, because I had a 3D, I could just send it to one of my 3D printers, and so I could go into the doctor's office and say, "Well, here's the diseased part of my." colon that is causing me to get more and more in fact i said to my wife in 2016 i'm going to explode if something doesn't happen we did this high resolution we found out that my opening in 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 one part of that colon was down to four millimeters everything was trying to get pushed through to out the back end through four millimeter opening and so i was like a balloon i was filling up so we could we actually have a three-dimensional room you walk into for virtual reality with glasses. I brought my surgeon over and I said, Well, as long as you're gonna be inside me, cutting, why don't you and I as a doctor decide where you're gonna cut my six inches of my colon and right here, right now. And she said, Well, usually we wait till I'm inside of you and they're using a Da Vinci laparoscopic robot. Uh, and I look around and I said, yeah, but why do we want to wait until you're inside me with a bunch of cutters when you can know right now? Right. Oh, gee, we've never done that before. And I thought, well, think of the first airplane pilot who, when they said, well, what happens when you run through a thunderstorm in a jetliner? They says, I don't know. We'll figure it out when that happens. I said, well, we got this thing called a simulator. Why don't you try it a few times and develop your skill set a little bit before you actually run into one? That's great. And that's and then that, of course we think it you wouldn't get in a plane that a pilot hadn't been through simulators, right? But this that's was right. the first time for this very experienced surgeon. She's actually the head of colorectal surgery for UC San Diego Health. Uh-huh. But she's got, so then then the Helmsley Foundation found out about this, which is the largest funder for Crohn's disease. And and so they provided us with a, a million dollar grant. And we've now done 10 more patients like this. But my point is to figure out where all of this is in, inside of you. Where's the colon? Where's the, yes. we're using machine learning. We're actually take, we, we actually train up our neural nets on individual patients of what is a colon where's the aorta where's the liver where's the spleen where's the bladder and then and then we apply that as and that comes back with a first version and then a a skilled doctor who knows anatomy goes in and says well it's not quite right here it's not right here so now the human is tweaking the ai now the ai is smarter and then the next patient comes along we get another one and it just gets better and better and so this is a whole new way that is going to be using machine learning and we're all going to have transparent versions of ourselves Mm -hmm. in our medical record in the next, I mean, it'll probably take five to 10 years, but I mean, we can, it can, it can be done.
1: Yeah. Well, and the amazing thing too, and and you and I've talked about this, if you study biology in school or whatever, you have that, you know, beautiful diagram that you pull out the liver's green and the lungs are yellow or whatever, and they're all in the same place you talk to a surgeon, it's like, yeah, it's not, everything's, everything's red and it's not all the same. And some people are, Very different. you know, I we
2: found that with, the, with these 10 patients, I mean, and we were working with a team of our top doctors, surgeon, radiologist, GI, head of GI, gastrointestinal. And we're, and as they look at each of them, I was fascinated to listen to the doctors. They said, oh my God, I can't believe how tied up that, that colon is. I mean, That's a train wreck, and they didn't have this methodology. Had they had, in fact, we take the colonoscope video of of the when you have a a colonoscopy. Yeah, Uh, we we add that in too. So, so this is just a new tool that's enabled by what you started the whole hour about. Yeah, that this is the digitization of your entire body. And then because of that, it becomes computable and you can begin to model it and you can begin to then measure the differences. Yes. And imagine, I mean, everybody's now doing their own stock portfolio and everything. I mean, imagine you didn't have individual time series. You couldn't tell the difference in the return between one and another. Sure. How what would you do? <laughs> yeah. So, so this is, it's coming. It's, I think it's, it's fabulous that it's coming um, to healthcare.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the questions we have from Daniela to Rizzi, this notion of what do we do and how do we make um, this framework of medicine, with, uh, with the genetics and so forth. I mean, I think that I know that you participated in, there's some public goods being created, like I forget what it's called, the one millimeter man or something anyway. So now there's a CAT scan model that we actually have data representations that are much more robust. You're creating, you see San Diego, this human gut biome project, which is creating both proprietary insight, but also an unbelievable set of your, it's essentially terra incognita, right? It's like when we talk about the human gut biome from a genetics perspective, I mean, it's it's as opaque as the new world was to Columbus, right? And so you, you bring the, the basic maps in place. I, so I think it's, to me, I think it's about the creation of some of these public goods and models and data. And then, of course, corporations will build on that. But the other thing, Larry, I, I also want to interject here is, I think people underestimate how big a difference this can make because my one of the guys at my thesis committee was Pat Winston, Patrick Henry Winston III, who you know well. And at the time, he was running the AI lab at MIT. And Pat says something which always stuck with me. He said, and he's one of the world's experts in AI, starting in the 80s and before. The And he said, a lot of people talk about advances in algorithms and technique. He said, a lot of the breakthroughs in AI is when you have a new representation system. So you're collecting new data, you're doing... And so when you're looking at a 3D model and you're talking about longitudinal data and the relationship, it changes the way you represent the problem, which then allows you new kinds of data analysis. And we go back to the car with the... If you think about the GPS system as an extension and representation, where we are in XY space, a little bit Z, but mostly XY space that any device or anything can be put on a grid, Cartesian grid around the world, that new representation in a dynamic way, that new representation system becomes a scaffolding that you can hang so many things off. So, Daniela, I think that we've got insights that can be shared. I think that there's data assets, but I think also we're starting to evolve a new way of thinking about uh, the body, humans, groups of humans that will be a scaffolding that that lots of things
2: will hang on. Well, and and the and the thing is with exponentials is you see something a crazy person like me doing this stuff as a gentleman scientist, as a hobby or whatever. I mean, and and the next thing you know, it's everywhere. And that's just the way exponentials work. So, I was on an advisory uh, meeting yesterday with Lee Hood. Lee Hood is the one of the most important biomedical wizards uh, in our lifetime and he invented uh, the gene sequencer and and developed a lot of the technologies that we all take for granted he right now is working with congress to put in a a million person version of me so in other words the the full phenome the full uh, longitudinal time series of all these variables including ones i'm not even measuring Plus the full human genome across a million people with a very diverse set. Of, we're looking at at at, at African American communities, Hispanic communities, immigrant communities. Trying to get a very diverse set in that million. Yes. And and this is and the whole project. It's called Beyond the Human Genome. And you're going to hear more and more about that. It hasn't been funded yet, but I remember being at this stage. You know, when John, you, and I were talking together in the early 2000s. Well, yeah. human genome, which yeah. one persons human genome hadn't been funded, and and there was a big battle between IH and and, and Craig Venter and so forth. but but that was twenty years ago. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So within twenty years, we'll
1: we'll have this. So, you I mean, don't hold the price tag on that? Do
2: you? That before? Uh, no, it's billions. As uh, as
1: yeah. it, a thousand bucks a person, it's a billion.
2: Yeah, but the problem is that's the whole point of why we have when you did the first human genome, right? It was several uh, billion dollars. It's now a hundred dollars. Right. Oh okay. yeah. Twenty years later. And so the idea is to drive down the cost of all these lab tests so yeah. that you can in fact many of these will be in your home. Many of these you'll be able to to monitor your own health uh, in the privacy of your bathroom or 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 whatever and you'll have all of this social media and 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 ability to put stuff into the cloud all of this stuff that's coming from my apple watch from my fitbit from the aura it's all in the cloud and and i wake up every morning with my wife who's also got wearing these things and then we just download the graphs of what happened during the seven eight hours we were asleep yes i mean think about it you have no idea right what was happening to your precious body Mm -hmm. because you were unconscious right well these weren't right and so i get this great story oh my god i see what happened to my heart rate and my heart rate variability and my respiratory rate and yeah and and you know it's crazy that we don't know this stuff
1: and some people may say hey i don't want to do that that's fine i mean you look at there's a a well-known segmentation study in personal finance. You're talking about, you know, understanding. And look, uh, there's one way to look at it is that there's three big segments in personal finance. There are self-directed folks like you. There are folks who kind of want to look over the shoulder of uh, an expert. So you go to the doctor, but you want to look at the data too. And you see that in finance. And then there are delegators. It's like, okay, here's my money. Go make me money, right? And I think we'll have those segments in this as well, right? There'll be the people who say, but you... But even the delegators want to make sure that the people who are investing their money have the right technology and the right insights and the right data. And so that transformation is underneath. And my guess is that right now we've got the vast majority of delegators, but we're going to get look over the shoulder and self-directed to a much greater degree.
2: Yeah. And I want to make it clear. I'm not telling people they should be like me. I'm just trying to say that me and the other people like me that are early adopters in this right. are just straws in the wind of a major change that's coming to wellness and to, as you say, insurance, the whole medical, but also I think it's going to make a huge difference in the, a lot of industries, food industry and, and, and oh, um, yeah. all these others. So so it's just to re-alert that that's coming and it yes. start Putting on the lenses that let you see that change coming as it happens, literally, it's happening monthly, yearly now, at a pretty high rate. And it, I just remember the shock when Blockbuster all of a sudden wasn't any longer. Sure. And Tower Records closed. Right. We saw all of this coming, but then it actually comes to the first shall be last of the last shall be first moment. Yeah. It always seems like such a shock to everybody. Where did that come? Uh, from?
1: Yeah, well, you know, it was funny because I I wasn't a good enough salesperson. We actually pitched Blockbuster on a whole how they could take the data they had in the stores, and we had a we had a telecommunication strategy where they could where, where they could do a deal. Level Three was involved and other people were we going to use some new kinds of subscriptions, and and we we basically had the whole Netflix idea, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. but we couldn't get sold at Blockbuster. there no, because- like,
2: you can't, because the people who have gotten very good at the old way of doing things yeah. aren't the ones. It wasn't the buggy whip manufacturers who went into making automobiles. It wasn't the horse people Sure, who made automobiles. It, it, this is just a classic market sure. transition. Sure.
1: And, Larry, I'm a little mindful of time. I've got about five minutes left, too. There's a couple of things. First of all, it's great to hear Bob Heebler. Old old friend, glad to glad to see you, Bob. Was saying, hey, look, this has already happened with Tesla, right? Tesla's launching an insurance company because they have better they have better. I would think there's underwriting variables, and they already have the relationship in place and so forth. So adding the insurance on, very good point. Very good point. And then Carrie Neat has a question about, okay, do you also track your brain health? And we've only got a short time because I have to set us up for the next thing, and maybe we can get you back again, Larry, talk some more because I, I think the implications of this. I I just talked and you and I talked about before, a little bit about providers who are going to have to track you over time. It's not just going to be, and we're actually doing work with a couple of providers and it's more horizontal and in-hospital, outpatient, rehab, in-home and trying to get that and the, the implications of that. We're doing it for for what we call care pathways Another thing, rehab tracker. And the financial implications just on efficiency on the provider side are massive, never mind the satisfaction of thing and the coordination across those the steps horizontally uh, for most organizations is just abysmal. I mean, it's it's not just. Let me
2: let me specifically answer her question. It was yeah. her I think that that about the brain health. Yeah, I should be doing a lot more online things where it's kind of like games or something. But what they're doing is measuring a lot of things, memory kinds of brain function. I do, I do have a time series of, of brain MRIs, so I'm actually tracking anatomy, but right. one of the biggest breakouts that's gonna come is a motion track. When you, you sit here all day long with this thing, looking at while you're, your thumbs are doing all this stuff while you're looking at this thing, notice there's a camera looking at your face. That camera c- we showed in our lab 15 years ago, you can put a, a mesh over your face tracking all the muscle groups, and you can tell your emotional state vastly better than you, the individual, that your emotional state is. And because you're getting that data through time, you can begin to see correlations about it and so forth. So I think emotion tracking and mental health tracking is going to be a huge market that is going to be dominant uh, in the next five years from now. We will be talking about steps. We'll be talking about mental health tracking.
1: Absolutely. Well, Larry, so much more. I
2: hope you'll come back again
1: and they will have a chance to go in depth in a couple of the different areas, because I think what you said about the implications for other industries, when you think about longitudinal tracking, what happens to a human and on McDonald's, I mean, I think McDonald's is going to be looking at what the football folks are looking at today as people track longitudinally what happens to their body and not just McDonald's, but all kinds of food providers. And that's going to be really interesting to see what what that all means as we articulate this. Awesome. Well, thank you, Larry, as always, not enough time and too much fun.
0: That's it for this episode. For more information and advice on how to become a growth innovator in your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time.